progressive voices, and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Now, remember, if you value what we do, we need your support. Go visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Do what you can. Hey, if you can be a monthly a monthly donor, that's even the, that's the best of all options. And, you know, thanks also to the local businesses that continue to help make this program possible, including Gateway Market and Cafe. That's our anchor sponsor. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can also order your groceries online, and they've got a great catering and floral service as well. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, uh, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-paid basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, folks, so here's our lineup for today. Uh, and again, for our podcast audience, we'll be interviewing Connie Bozen, who's running for re-election to the Des Moines City Council. We're going to be talking with, uh, well, Charles Goldman's going to co-host with me today. And yet we will answer finally the question that many people have wondered about, who the heck is Charles Goldman? We're going to answer that question today. So we'll also talk about the uh, hidden costs of rare earth minerals that are needed to, to basically complete the Green New Deal and also are instrumental in your smartphone. We're going to be talking about Afghanistan. Could that be a problem for Democrats in 2022? Charles says yes. He thinks it also might be a problem for the presidential election in 2024. We'll also talk about the word race, a term that Charles insists has no biological basis. We'll also look at a new anti-vax. Yes, every week a new anti-vax conspiracy theory. This one saying that COVID vaccines are what spread the Delta variant. And finally, just to lighten it up a little bit, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about food security and how that ought to include forage-friendly cities. But first, I am delighted to welcome to the program Connie Bozen. She is a, a longtime a political leader here in Des Moines. She was on the Des Moines School Board for 14 years, has served on the City Council for four years, and is running for re-election. Connie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. And congratulations on surviving the Iowa State Fair. That is an accomplishment. <laughs> uh, after uh, 11 days, and we have six uh, locations, two salables. Right. And for Appalachia. So uh, it's a busy time. And to be clear, Connie isn't just surviving the way most people survive the fair by going and doing a few things and coming home. You were there every day. Right. I own yeah. and operate it. So I was there by seven in the morning and I left about one <laughs> thirty at night. Well, good so. for you. Amazing. All right. Beyond that, climate change, uh, or as I call it, the climate emergency, a huge emerging issue. Um, how, how central is that to your campaign messaging? Well, I think that we showed that we were very uh, strong on sending a message by passing our energy resolution. I think it was one of the, uh, it laid out very clearly that we are strongly in favor of taking action and bringing about, uh, the really bringing forward that there is need to do something different. Hmm. And I think we're one of the few cities that have done that. Uh, it's clear every day as we hear weather reports, the storms that are going on in Louisiana, all the things that are affecting lack of rain, it just goes on and on. So I think it's, um, it's something you just have to keep continually educating people on. And I think by passing the resolution, I think we sent a message that we are serious about it. We've even hired an energy sustainability coordinator. Right. Uh, so the city of Des Moines is taking it serious. 
and we hope other communities will follow. Yeah, and part of the problem, of course, is the uh, state and federal governments, not all states, but certainly our state, Iowa, is not taking it seriously. In fact, when the city of Des Moines took some progressive action toward energy, the state pushed back. Well, I think that you'll continually find that, but I yeah. think you, that's just part of advocacy and the continuation. Nothing comes easy. It's a process. We just hope people will understand that this is a crisis that needs to be addressed sooner than later. And I think by the, you know, the federal government is taking more action now. And I think that we will, as we get the message out, I think it's a continual effort. And like, you've been doing this a long time. Yeah. It, it doesn't end with one resolution. Right. Right. It ends with a continuation and bringing forward ideas and informing the public of the importance of climate so change. One thing I've been arguing is that uh, climate change is a problematic everywhere. It's, right now, it's very problematic this past week in Louisiana. And uh, it's been problematic for several years now out west in a very different way with um, very dry conditions, uh, unprecedented number of fires, uh, a crazy heat wave in the northwest. My contention is the west is close to the point where the water resources can no longer sustain a population of about 70 million people. And we're going to start seeing people migrating from the west to parts of the country with better water resources, such as Iowa. I mean, I... How, how, what should Iowa and I guess more specifically Des Moines do to prepare for that inevitable exodus? Well, I think that it's with any, you know, we always try to recruit to think that you would recruit people to come back to Iowa because of the water conditions. Uh, but I think we also need to take efforts to make sure we have the best water supply that we can have and that we have a good balance. And we have to look at how we're using the water and how we can effectively use it and, and conserve it even here. Yeah. Because we've had dry spells. We're having a dry spell now. So I think it's evident that natural resources are just not always forever, that we have to protect this earth and we have to do a better job of doing that. And we all can play a part and it doesn't have to be encumbering. I mean, just something simple like the rain barrels that we offer, mm -hmm. uh, planting gardens out in your front yard uh, or conserving things so that it's just the natural way to do it. You can do it in a very easy way. It's not cumbersome, but every little effort does make a difference. Yeah. And water is a big issue because, you know, we've, we've got um, we've got the most, um, I think, the most expensive nitrate removal system in the world in Des Moines. And uh, that, that, you know, that, that's, that's problematic. We shouldn't have to have that. Um, and yet uh, there's this tension between uh, population centers that rely on river water uh, and rural areas that, uh, that farm and that, uh, I mean, I know we've got some great operators out there in rural Iowa who practice good conservation measures, right. but, you know, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, how, what, what do you see? Is there, is there a role for Des Moines in continuing to lead on trying to develop a, a, you know, a better approach to managing clean water? Well, I think we are doing that. Uh, I do think that we have to be looking at strategies that work, but we also, get, we really need to work with people upstream. And we've got to come up with an effective strategy because they need clean water as much as we need clean water. And I think that this isn't a rural-urban issue. This is a health issue for all of us mm -hmm. and a sustainability issue for all of us. That we shouldn't be looking at it as them against us. We're no one in rural Iowa should want water that's not good for them either. Right. Yeah. And I think that I think again it goes back to it's a process of education and understanding the dynamics and how all of us can play a part. And what can we do? And the state should be a leader in that, quite honestly, because we can't control what's coming to us downstream. Mm 
Mm-hmm. We can't control what's going over in another town across the way from us. Or, or, or across we, state lines. We yeah. all have to work together yeah. to really make effective strategy. So you've been very supportive of the uh, Food Security Task Force, which was a concept that Kathy and I presented uh, last fall. You and Carl Voss, in fact, are the uh, co-sponsors of the resolution establishing that. Um, any thoughts on, on that effort as we continue to move forward on creating a, a pages on the, on the city's website that help, help people understand how they can do a, a better job at growing their own food? Well, I think that it's great that we were able to get people together and come up with ideas and really put together the process. Again, it's a uh, start with it, get the information out there, and show people how you can make a difference. I mean, I look at what you have right outside your door, and you <laughs> you can feed your whole family with it. And it doesn't take a lot of space. It does take some time. Yeah. But I think educating people on how to do it, it's just not that easy. I mean, I plant tomatoes so I can have them. <laughs> and it's, it, it's a process of learning it and showing how you, even in an urban environment, you can support yourself with food. Yeah. And I think it was, uh, we appreciate you bringing it forward because I think, we all have land. We all have space. We could all contribute to more healthy food. And I think by, again, it was the beginning. It doesn't end, and we will continue. Yeah, good. Well, we have a long ways to go, but yes. yeah, it was a good start. So, um, again, we, um, you know, one thing that's important, I think, is that we try to do what we can personally to, in response to the climate emergency. Anything in particular that you, you're doing in your own life that you think is important in terms of, you know, showing how you're responding to the emerging problem? Well, I think it's really just being involved and trying to bring forward and then being cautious of how do I run my energy or do I make other energy changes mm-hmm. or do I plant more gardens so I have more sustainability. All those things, maybe it's not major in any way, but if everybody did just yeah. a little bit, we would make such a difference. What about being the first uh, city council member to have chicken? Well, that could be. That could be. Uh, I uh, remember helping my grandmother. With yeah, them. I'm sure. You I mean, there's again, there's more that all of us can do. So, what what distinguishes you from your opponent? You have one opponent, Justin Lewis. What's uh, how do you distinguish yourself from him? Well, I think that for me, it's the uh, the experience that I bring. Uh, I've, like I said, I've served 14 years on the school board now, one term on the city council, and I work hard. I get things done. And I work together with people, and I'm willing to be open to suggestions, just as this was a suggestion. We yeah. came and we met, uh, and we felt a need. Yeah. And so we tried to make a change, and that's what I've always done on any, in the years I've served in any office, to look at the issues, try to come up with solutions, and try to make this the best community it can be. Yeah. And, uh, and again, for a large portion, one reason I ran was to improve our neighborhoods, and to bring about change in our neighborhoods, and we are definitely seeing some change in the neighborhoods yeah. and how we readdress and restructure and bring about opportunity that all neighborhoods thrive yeah. and are successful. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us, Connie. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. Folks, we've been talking with Connie Bozen. She's a, a city council member here in Des Moines, the at-large, uh, one of the two at-large members. And we've invited all, this, all the Des Moines City Council candidates to join us. You can see these interviews on our, on our YouTube page. Also catch them on our podcast, on the podcast on our website. Thanks also to the local businesses who help sponsor this program, uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. Drake Family Psychiatry. We'll be back in a minute, folks. More talk here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. 
Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, so Charles Goldman is with me again today, folks. I know, again. And I've had a number of people lately, a number of you listeners have asked, who the heck is this Charles Goldman guy anyhow? And with me to answer that question is Charles Goldman. Charles, who the heck are you? So uh, I'm, I'm somebody who uh, is a 60s refugee, uh, <laughs> anti-war, pro-civil rights. Survivor of Woodstock? So, well, I know I was too, a little too young for Woodstock. But I was actually in summer camp, not... Uh, maybe 50 miles from Woodstock. Uh, you know, political junkie, political science major in college. Went the usual route of people interested in politics to medical school. Um, <laughs> well, I think you're going to say law school. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I mean, sometimes I wonder about that. Yeah. But uh, just, you know, a political junkie. And you, a history junkie. And you, and you cut up people for a living. I do. Yes. Although less so than in the past. I right. actually do hospice and palliative medicine now. So. Hospice. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very good. And so, and you, and you study, I mean, you're pretty well versed in a lot of uh, these key issues, and you pretty much, you, you study that while you're operating on somebody, I assume, right? Well, I did in the past. Now I can actually <laughs> read it at my desk. <laughs> uh, and, and, and again, you're, uh, you're uh, the AMA somehow, the American Medical Association, has not been offended by your excessively progressive viewpoints? Well, I, I'm actually not an AMA member. Oh, okay. So, okay. Um, I, have no, I have no idea. No, yeah. I mean, it, it, physicians as a, a group, tend to be conservatives because, as well, well, I think part of it is is the nature of being high-income earners in this country. Mm. What is it Winston Churchill said? If you're young and a liberal, uh, you have no heart. Yeah. And if you're, uh, if you're older and a liberal, you have no brain. <laughs> so. if, you're, if, you're young, if you're young and conservative, you have no brain. Yeah, yeah. What does Winston Churchill know? Yeah. He had neither brain nor heart, in my opinion. Well, oh, that was heresy. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, he was a conservative, no question. I mean, I and actually, not, it's a, that's an a interesting fan. comparison because yeah. you know he went from the the uh, tragedy of Gallipoli and his World War One leadership to, of course, his heroism as you know yeah. history has depicted him for his World War Two leadership. And in between, he had nothing but good, nothing but bad things to say about Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and 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 the Irish. <laughs> okay. So hey, um, we're going to talk about uh, the um, the rare metals that are needed to, in some cases, solar panels, in some cases, um, wind turbines. I know lithium, what primarily used to treat uh, depression and other types of um, uh, of mental health conditions. 
Uh, but lithium also but, has no, well, I thought the lithium mining that we're doing. <laughs> no, obviously lithium is a key component in, in batteries and sure. batteries in cell phones as well as large-scale batteries that would be important in the green sure. revolution. So, yeah, and so, so we, we, we get all warm and fuzzy about the promise of solar energy, of wind energy, of, um, of new technologies that, that uh, will get us off fossil fuels, and either you and I both agree that's needed, mm-hmm. but it's important to look at the big picture, and the big picture, uh, you've been digging a little bit into this, uh, the big picture when it comes to rare earth metals, uh, it's, not a, it's not an unblemished track record. Well, I think that, you know, we talked about this before, which is that there's a lot of reasons why changing our consumption patterns would be helpful on a large scale as opposed to the approach that we, we've talked about as more politically palatable, which is to allow technology to somehow figure this out without further besmirching the environment. I love Bill Gates. Well, I just, I, I just think that that's the general position of, of the political parties, both political parties in some ways, well, it's because in the they're, they're committed to the endless growth paradigm. Well, they, that's correct. They want to see that's everything correct. continue the way it is. We're always consuming more. We're always getting bigger. We're getting better. Technology is going to bail us out. And to some extent, uh, we're going to need technology to bail us out. So we're going to need these rare earth metals. Well, all, I'm not saying we don't need rare earth metals. What I'm saying is, is that here again, there's a difference between changing your phone every year because Apple convinces you it's an absolute necessity right. and thereby having to have a new battery in that phone. And what, particularly what I'm talking about is the issue of, well, two things. Number one... Um, great article recently about what's it like to be in a cobalt mining region in, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo? Because cobalt is a mineral, in fact. I, I see you have on, on your computer that lithium isn't used that much. But in fact, cobalt is used in sure. all the batteries yeah. to keep them from catching fire. Well, I was curious about lithium because of its uh, its prominence in, in Afghanistan. But let's talk about, well, let's, let's but talk about cobalt. Not the only, but that's not right. the only no, rare earth mineral, yeah. and that's exactly so to, right. You, so, for instance, cobalt, there's two main reserves in the world. Okay. Democratic Republic of Congo and Afghanistan. Right. Um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you have children as young as three being in the mines. You have shafts that are unsupported, that people are digging under their houses to mine cobalt because the price has gone up 40% due to its need. It's mildly radioactive. It's usually found in association with other heavy metal toxins that are poisoning pregnant women in the Congo. And um, I just think it's really easy when all the cost of these things is hidden in the same way that we hide you know, nuclear plants, yeah. you know, as best we can. Although, obviously, there's places like Indian Point that are right north of New York City. You know, but coal mining is in places that people don't care about. Um, and, you know, cobalt mining is in places that people don't care about either. And so yeah. I, I just think that at some point, as you and I both agree, that we have to change the growth paradigm. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be mining rare earth minerals because they are needed in various technologies. What is cobalt needed for? To keep the lithium batteries from uh, oh. spontaneously catching fire. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of a good idea. Yeah, so, but the, but the point is, it's also a byproduct of copper mining. Right. Which we, obviously, is a very in, you know, important, not rare earth mineral, but one that's very important for electrical transmission and other things. For, but my, for, for decorating the domes of your capital. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but the point is, is that 
you know, since the increasingly the population of the world lives in large cities, most of this activity is hidden from view, right. and also right. it's hidden from view from Americans because it's done other places. Right. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so go ahead. I mean, so, so, so beyond beyond the uh, the poor working conditions, um, the uh, well, poor the, working conditions is a mild way of putting it. Okay, yeah, it, right, it, right, right, yeah. Horrific, okay, <laughs> horrific would be more but like who, it. Who owns? Who owns the cobalt reserves, the lithium reserves, the other rare earth mineral reserves? Uh, our friend China owns a huge amount of them. A company based in China? A Chinese the... company that's basically, you know, most Chinese companies are just fronts for the government. Sure, okay. Yeah. So the Chinese actually, um, there, there are some independent companies doing it in Congo, but the Chinese just made a huge investment. And the belief is, you know, because we'll talk about I guess Afghanistan at some point today, um, that um, the Chinese are going to have good relations with the Taliban solely because they're ready to take advantage of, they want access to the rare earth minerals. And right. remember, it's because the Chinese are building things that we buy here in the United States. Right. That's, they're not just buying it for themselves, they're buying it because they make Apple phones, and I'm not, they keep hitting on Apple. But, you know, the Taiwanese, same that's, thing. That's why we need to buy a new Apple phone every year to help keep the Chinese economy rolling I mean, forward. yeah, I mean, I just, <laughs> again, people don't understand that we live, you know, there's a lot of things to say about capitalism that are favorable. One of them isn't the fact that it's a system that is based on making you want stuff you don't need. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, anymore, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to say there's, there's a few things you can say that are positive about Capitalism. I, I'm a, I'm a more of a fan of of a of a true free market system. We don't have that at all. We have what Mitt Romney called crony capitalism. Well, right. It's going really well for the rich. Yeah. Well, did Mitt Romney say that or? Yeah. Crony capitalism. Yeah. Really, I thought I thought it was someone else. I thought it was Jane Mayer who first said that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course we have crony capitalism. This, this yeah. isn't a free market. So so anyway, the the earth minerals. Uh, I mean, how do you how do you what kind of regulatory system ought to be in place that makes sure that they are that the harvesting of rare earth minerals does not destroy the land, destroy the lives of the people who live in that area, um, that do not just go ahead and enrich um, either one big communist country in the well, <laughs> in, in Asia or big corporations in their heads. Uh, well, I mean that's that's the whole point of regulation, which is yeah, right. You know, as a friend of mine who used to be a mine inspector in the United States in West Virginia said, the best way you want you want to know how to regulate mining in the United States and make it safer. Make the corporate offices have to be inside the mines themselves. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to happen. So what? What? Um, what? What? I mean, what could we do that might make a difference? Well, what could we do is, for instance, the only real rare earth mine that might be viable in the United States sits on uh, property under the jurisdiction of the Native Americans out in the Southwest. So they would certainly have an incentive not to be poisoned. And which mineral is that? It's just. It's just. I. You know, they, these these minerals tend to, a lot of these minerals tend to be co-located, you know, sure, okay. in these mines. That's right. why it's generally not one. Lithium mines are a little different because they do tend to be fairly monolithic in, the, in terms of mining. But a lot of these other mines are multiple extractions. And, of course, that's great. It means there's tons of chemicals, toxic chemicals that are generated in the extraction of these minerals. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Native Americans control for the most part, uh, the only viable mine site in the United States. Right. So unlike the you know, coal miners in West Virginia who let themselves be poisoned by putting the tailings from the mountaintops that were blown off in their own water, yeah, yeah. You know, hopefully the Native Americans well, will not. We've got to take a short break, but, uh, but just to, you know, on lithium, 
and Afghanistan. Lithium is one of the uh, key mineral reserves that Afghanistan controls, and those reserves are worth trillions of dollars. That's In right. other words, way more than the poppy trade. Uh, you know, right? It's huge. And um, beyond beyond that, Afghanistan, big story lately, of course, as it should be. Uh, should have been a big story for the past 20 years. Uh, and the question we're going to tackle in the next segment is whether what's going on in Afghanistan is going to cost Democrats in 2022 and whether it, whether it might, in fact, help Trump regain the White House in 2024. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Charles Goldman filling in with me today also as the co-host of this program. And remember, what you hear on this show, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations. Uh, you can support the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Go to the Fallon Forum website or email me at ed at fallonforum.com for details. And also thanks to the local businesses who continue to help make this program possible. Thanks to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Thanks also to Western Optometry located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so, Charles, I mean, we, we could talk a lot about Afghanistan, how we either never should have went in or should have gotten out right after the stated mission was accomplished. But right now, we've seen an exit that, again, many people felt we need to get out of this war. But a lot of people, maybe a majority, are saying that the exit was totally botched. Now, we could talk a lot about that, but I think there's some value in looking down the road. I haven't heard a lot of conversation about this. Looking down the road at the 2022 election, is Afghanistan going to be enough of an issue a year from now where it's going to impact Democrats' prospects in congressional and U.S. Senate races? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult to know that. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously 
a very front and center issue right now. Um, and I, I, there's a lot there's a lot of things about Afghanistan um, that this that this episode has really highlighted. First of all, do you know how many minutes in total the Afghanistan conflict was talked about in the six months before the last month on the nightly news for the three major networks? I don't know, but I'm going to guess very, very little. Five minutes. Five minutes, yeah. Five minutes. Yeah. So what the, the Biden administration managed to do was turn a issue which basically was being ignored by almost everybody and, and been that way for a long time. Not five minutes, yeah. not five minutes over six months, a long time, but uh, pretty much it had been that way for years. And now brought it front and center. Now, of course, they didn't do it by themselves. By And, and I, I think everyone has to agree that the presentation by the president of saying it's not going to be Saigon, it was almost predictable it was going to look like <sighs> Saigon. And in fact, there was no way of getting out where it wasn't going to look like Saigon. Um, you know, that... This is all going to go fine. It, there was no way that was possible. Anybody who had served there knew it was well, and, he, and he's not the possible. first. There have been four presidents who have basically lied, knowingly lied about but that's what's un- going on in Afghanistan. I understand that, yeah. and, and I agree with you. And, and, and the, the, the flip side is, first of all, there was absolute ineptitude, and it's not just on Biden. It's on the military. I mean, what was this plan? Why would you have had a plan in a landlocked country that you're going to give up a secure airfield at Bagram for an insecure airfield in the middle of Kabul. I mean, it made no sense. On the other hand, as horrendous as the attack was the other day, they got 80,000 civilians out in a very short period of time. Right, it was but, actually but, pretty amazing. But what's going to be re- remembered next year is the attack and the, the, the dead service well, members. Yes. Uh, and not the, not the folks who were evacuated. Um, well, it depends on it depends on the way because there's going to be a narrative from both sides. Sure. What I'd like, and I know which one's going to win. Well, what I'd like the Democrats to do is stop yakking about Trump's agreement. We all understand the hypocrisy of of Trump and Pompeo and any of them talking about this agreement that they made. In what way? Well, they made the agreement. Sure, I know that. That, brought, that, that told the Pakistanis, let these five thousand Taliban go. We're out. And, on an arbitrarily chosen day in May. Right. Um, and we're washing our hands of this. That right. was their agreement. Sure. But Biden could have said, just like Trump reneged on the Iran nuclear combat, Biden could have said, well, no, I'm not going to go with he, this. He had no intention of doing that because he believed he was sure. against the involvement, the continuing involvement during his time in the Obama administration. That is absolutely valid. He's right. not making right. that up. That's, I, I get that. Right. And so, so Trump actually helped Biden out by laying the groundwork for that. In some sense, absolutely, he but, did. But, but again, you know, Trump and Bush, and the other two of the four presidents who supported the war, who lied about the war, they're going to be forgotten. That's you know, correct. It's, it's going to be all on Joe, and even Obama is going to be forgotten. Okay, it's going to be this on is, Joe Biden. That's correct. I, I agree with that. But this is what's happening, which is the same media that didn't seem to think it was important to ever talk about Afghanistan for six months. Or, or longer, it, really. It's really... It's, it, it, it's just wall to wall. The only thing that interrupted it was Ida, was the hurricane down and in New COVID. Orleans. To some degree, COVID, but in, but mostly, I would say, you know, the wall to wall of what happened for a day down in New Orleans which was horrible. Hmm. Um, but all we hear, it, it, it's this, it, the, the lesson is the same from every war we have fought since World War II. World War II was a set piece war 
where people were in uniform for the most part, so you knew who was going to be on one side, who's on the other. You could have tanks against tanks, and you could do all the things that's depicted in World War II movies. There hasn't been a, set, a war like that since World War II. And every war that we've been involved in, or, or foreign engagements, you know, I, I served during Somalia. That was supposed to be a humanitarian, you know, feed, feed the people in another country run by tribal leaders that turned into, we picked a side, and we turned it into a war. Um, there is no way to nation build with the military. And, and you know, I, I've, I've talked with people who say, well, look at the Japanese, look at the Germans. Right? We occupied them. We could have just continued to occupy Afghanistan. No, the Japanese were just happy it wasn't the Russians who, who won. <laughs> and they didn't want any war crimes trials, and they were very solicitous of the Americans. The Germans had a democratic tradition of somewhat similar to ours that antedated Hitler. There's no tradition in Afghanistan. Right. There's no tradition in Vietnam. Okay, so back to the point about what, it's gonna, what the impact's going to be on the election. I... I just think it, it is going to be who is more adept at putting the narrative together. Oh, and the, and let me, the let me, Democratic narrative should not be it's Trump's fault. The Democratic me. narrative should be we need to examine as a country these kinds of endeavors and ask the question, how do these all end up being mission creep like this? Okay. And again, that, I, I, I get that. Um, and stop they, blaming they, Trump. They, you they sound like a end. whiner, and people right. they sound like they're whining. Yeah. Enough with Trump already. I don't. I don't. I guess I don't see again. Twenty twenty two is historically a bad year for whatever party is in the White House. That's correct. And now Democrats not only control the White House, they control the House by a very slim margin, mm-hmm. the Senate by an even slimmer margin. Um, you know, the, the the cards are already stacked against the Democrats. Now you throw. All They've got one card to play, and that is, and that is get rid of the filibuster and do what the okay, people want and, you to and, do. And people want you to rebuild this country. Compliments to a senator from West, West Virginia and Arizona. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Well, and they then, won't do it. The, right? They're digging their own grave. Okay, fair I enough. Mean, they are digging fair their enough. own grave. <laughs> but they're going to stand by their principles in, in, in the process. But again, I, I think Afghanistan just gives the. Uh, the Republican narrative more feel rightly or wrongly, and again I, again I think both parties are are um, should you know should should be held responsible for what's happened for the past twenty years. And again, it's not just Afghanistan. Every war since World War II has That's been a war of opportunism. It's been a war about oil or about ideology. Uh, maybe the next war will be about water or lithium. I don't know. Um, but you know this, this it's always about extending our empire structure, you know? I mean, sure, we, 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 we say we want to build democracy. We want to do some nation building. But come on, what, what do we really want to do? We want to build a nation that is beholden to the U.S., that is basically part of our colonial domain. I, I mean, let's, let's be honest about this. This is, this, is, um, this, is a, this is the foreign policy of an empire, and it's got to change. It's got to end. Maybe that's the one. I think the that's one, a great point. That's the one way all the Democrats no, that, have to admit that. That's a great point and because it, it, it goes into you know, this issue of racism, racism, slavery, all these things. Every empire ultimately is about colonialism and imperialism. And you can, you can see yourself and paint yourself as they did coming out of World War II that the, Ameri- you know, the United States was the arsenal of democracy. But you're absolutely right. 
What did they say about Vietnam? We lost Vietnam. What are they saying about Afghanistan? We lost v Afghanistan. No, these are their own countries. Why did we have the Philippines as a colony of the United States until 1947? Yeah. This is our history. And until we teach our children that this is the history of empire, I agree with you totally. Yeah. That's the, that is what is the true underlying issue. See, I, and I think, I think the, the response to make America great again is yes, let's make America great uh, by, by, by kind of focusing within. I mean, yes, we need to be a part of the international community when it comes to conversations about climate, about water quality, about, about air quality, because air and water and climate don't stop at national boundaries. But beyond that, yes, start focusing on the, on the internal problems we have. Stop these adventurous, you know, misadventures uh, overseas. Um, and again, let's be clear about why they've been happening. They've been happening because there are powerful interest groups in this country that want them to happen. I, I think that's the Democrats' only hope at having a winning conversation in Afghanistan leading to 2022, or as you suggested, to 2024. And this could indeed fuel a resurgence of Trump's, uh, um, Trump's uh, I wouldn't say popularity, but his ability to win the argument as to why he'd be a better resident of the White House than somebody like Joe Biden. And again, it's a, it's a phony argument, but I think it's a strong one when it comes to uh, persuading the swing voters that, uh, that determine the election results. Well, you also have to persuade the mass media to stop with this narrative because they are big businesses themselves. Oh, sure they are. They, they, and they make money off of conflict. They make right. money off of war. They don't make money off yep. of a uh, 2,500 you know, uh, American troops being held hostage in Afghanistan at Bagram. And that's why alternative media, may I say, like the Fallon Forum, are so important. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I, I, when we get to the issue of vaccination, I'm not sure how good alternative media right, well, is. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at some point. But I, I want to take a short break. I know you, um, you, you wanted to discuss race, and I want to discuss that with you. We're going to talk about that when we come back from a short break here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Happy post-Iowa State Fair, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon and Charles Goldman with you here. You know, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. You can check out the Fallon Forum website or just contact me at ed at fallonforum.com. Thanks also to the local businesses who help sponsor this program, including our nonprofit sponsors as well, including Bold Iowa, 
building rural urban coalitions to address climate change and to push back against the abuse of eminent domain. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, Charles, uh, you wrote a while back. I want to read this back to you. You can tell me mm -hmm. if you still agree with what you wrote. And I quote, race is a cultural concept that has been used to justify genocide and slavery and to maintain the power of the ruling elites. How do we start to raise our children to stop falling into the trap of division by, quote, race, while not neglecting the history of the crimes against humanity that have occurred in its name? So, Charles, are you trying to get yourself canceled here or what? No, I'm actually trying to talk as a scientist and a biologist. All right. And to move the discussion away from personal racism to what is undoubtedly a systematic racism that characterizes all colonial and imperial powers. But you're basically challenging the notion that there is something called race and it's based on there is biology. No, there, is, there is no biologic race. Okay, Let me just finish okay, why there's no sure. biologic race. In fact, people who read the Old and New Testament are going to love this part. Um, so the story of Adam and Eve. Now, clearly, the hum human race could not have come from two people, right? Because that's just a genetic dead end. It's like what's happening to nothing's the in, Nothing's impossible with God, No, it, it's, it, it's impossible. <laughs> but we do know that if you take genomic analysis, that there was probably a very limited number of first humans, the first homo sapiens. And that is just a scientific fact. Whatever number that is, it's not millions. It's probably in the numbers in the three, four hundred genomes. That's all you would need with mutation to create so a human race. 150 atoms, 150 eaves. Or 200, 300, yeah, something okay. like that. So the point is, is that science ends up at the same point that religion does, which is there's a limited number of progenitors to the human race. But we also know that all mammals, you know, and for which we participate in that genus, um, that, for instance, a, a rat differs from us only in about 3% of the genome. If you take the spectrum of genomes among humans, the difference is only 0.1% or less. Okay? So one in a thousand. Hmm. Okay? And so there is no race because the, we are all the same. We are 99.9% .9 the same. Okay. But there is only skin color. And that is what we have been, we have been using to differentiate people right. for thousands of years. But isn't race a an important means of distinguishing uh, that there are, there, are, there are groups of people, there are demographics within our society that are, are discriminated against. Uh, they're on the short end of, uh, of policy. They're on the short end of financial stability, short end of, of housing options. Uh, we just saw... We just saw, um, we've, we see stories all the time of, uh, of, uh, of black Americans uh, being discriminated against at a, at a uh, higher rate than other, oh, yeah, and other applicants for, for positions, I, I, for housing. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is, though, if we continue to allow the discussion to use this terminology, it's a dead end. Because, and, and, you know, we're beyond fixing, you and I. You know, we're too old. Oh, speak for yourself. You know, but... 
You're definitely too old. Right. We're, just, too old. Prime, We're too old. I'm prime for repair. But it, we need to raise a generation of children who understand the notion of race and understand that there. I'm not denying the structural racism. In fact, you know, the article that made me think about this is in that bastion of liberal journalism, the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, <laughs> in which they're basically, you know, pointing out the difference between a structural racism, which is exactly what you're talking about, which I totally agree. In fact, the front page article on Sunday in the uh, Des Moines Register is about that Des Moines is the third worst city in the country in terms of people uh, who are colored black. I'm not, I, I really, I'm getting, I have a trouble with using black as a racial term because then I'm just using the same terminology that's perpetuating this. Well, but people who are black have the third worst possibility of getting a mortgage in this city. Right compared to other cities in the United States, okay? That is absolutely structural racism. I'm not denying that there isn't race, but, but I'm denying that there's biologic race. And the mythology of, of, of calling people by color as a race is, is implying that somehow there's a differentiation between their capabilities and that of white people. There is not. But do you think uh, moving the conversation beyond and understanding your race is biologically based, does that help us move closer to ending systemic racism or does it set us back? The awareness about ra uh, awareness about systemic racism ties in with people's impressions of race. And if you kind of do away with that, uh, do you lose the momentum toward addressing systemic racism? No, absolutely not. Because... That's the, you know, getting back to what we talked about before. Colonialism occurs both ex outside your country and inside your country, and it's based on a, uh, a fracture of the human race that doesn't exist. And I think if they taught in biology that everybody, I, mean, I would even be okay if they taught that we all come from Adam and Eve. In fact, you isn't that not, what religion? You're just, you're just saying Isn't that. that what religion says? We all come from Adam and Eve. Does it not occur to anybody if we all come from Adam and Eve that we're all the same? Hmm. How hard is that to get across? It's only because the cultural concept of race is so useful to divide people and keep the attention away from the people who are oppressing everybody. Yeah, that's, no, that's why. That's 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 a, that's a strong argument. No, I'm, I'm simply saying, I, I'm, I'm with you. There is absolutely structural racism, and okay. the notion that we can't teach that in our schools so, is ludicrous. But, the, but, okay, if you look at a, a lot of the momentum for change is coming from demographics that identify very strongly uh, as, a, as a particular race, culture. Uh, I mean, identity politics is increasingly important and central in, in many Democratic campaigns, for example. Yeah, it's and, all, it's and a, lot, a lot of it's about identity and, politics. And the research on that is... That if you if you only approach those who are not in the group that you're talking about, they are uninterested in that. Hmm. That the Democrats need to combine that with a class consciousness, so that people feel that they have a stake in the same changes. If you hmm. simply make them about, well, you know, black people were slaves. We, you know, we we should pay back the debt to them. Whether that's true or not, it's it's not going to win. You have a country that's so close to being 50-50 right now. I'm simply saying that we need, if we're going to change anything, we can't have a country that's split 50-50. We need to find something that's going to pull people off. And the first thing we should do is say, we are all the same. I mean, and we are all the same. We are genetically all the same. And the, the you know, and 
look at something like football, right? I know, your favorite sport. Well, no, no, look at the terminology in football, right? Um, if if you know, the white athletes are always brainy and cerebral, right? Occasionally uh, they're athletic. I, okay, I didn't Occasionally, know. I, I'm, no, I'm, listen, not, listen, I'm not tracking listen, that, but go but ahead. Listen, listen to the way that these stereotypes are perpetuated. If you can play pro football, you're athletic. You're athletic whether you are white, black, Hispanic, Asian or not. Or you're cla- athletic. Or in a class by yourself, meaning Tom Brady. Right. Okay, no. <laughs> but, my, you know, that's my point, is that right. all of this slips into our terminology, and it, it's so accepted, you know, because the implication when you say, well, the white athlete is cerebral, the implication is the black athletes yeah, aren't. right, exactly. exactly. But they're just yeah. as cerebral, and, they're, and sure. the white athlete who can play in the NFL – where you've got you know linebackers, for instance, who run like world class times in short sprints, you know, hitting you at full speed. You're well, an athlete if you can play in that league, yeah. and so these are the kinds of things we got to get rid of. Yeah. Well, two two, two things. Uh, just a, a note of observation. Uh, you know, and I think you're you're right about the the, the construction of race is often used, maybe most often used to. Uh, to put down a particular population. One piece of evidence I have supporting that, and there's plenty out there. When my grandparents arrived less than 100 years ago from Ireland, um, my grandfather's race on the visa, whatever whatever paperwork he needed, he had his photograph, he had his height, his weight, his mm-hmm. age, and his race, Irish. Right, which his of course is just Irish. A, it's just an ethnicity. I mean, yeah. that's an, a totally well, but but, but again, you're right. It's a, a, but that 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 kind of went right along with the signs that he and my grandmother and others saw when they mm-hmm. got off the boat. If Irish, you need not apply. Irish right. need not apply. I mean, there was there was there it, was there it, it's was. It's a tool of oppression. It's a yeah. tool of oppression for everybody. But let me ask you this: You're you're Jewish. I was raised Jewish. Yeah, yes. and, and you're of Jewish descent. Um. Well, yes. I'm also of Eastern European descent. Right. Okay. So, you but know. you're considered. I mean, you, you you know, folks from the Mid East tend to be considered, you know, what, what brown, whatever. You know, this. Mm-hmm. You know, if if we're going to using racial. You mean like Jesus? Yeah, like Jesus. Right. Well, no, he well, was, Jesus was, he was a brown man. He was he was white eyed uh, or blue blue eyed and uh, <laughs> long brown hair. And that was only in Europe. Oh, okay, right. But but of I course mean, he was Semitic. But I mean, <laughs> Jewish people in this country are considered white. That's correct. No, it's I guess. Well, that's that's how meaningless the term <laughs> well, okay, is. Okay, yeah, yes, exactly. That's exactly, exactly how meaningless the term is, and and I, I understand, as you say, why we're engaging in identity politics using color somehow as a distinctor, uh, you know, a distinguishing characteristic. What I'm saying is, we got to move beyond that because it, it leads to a dead end. Okay. Well, I want to see if you get, you get canceled or not because I think you make you make some very good points. But uh, again, identity politics is thick right now, and you can't uh, you you can't challenge it uh, without some pushback, but. Way to go. (laughs) Hey, when we come back, folks, uh, because uh, we have a doctor in the house here, because we cannot avoid a COVID conversation, we're going to talk about a new anti-vax theory that says that vaccines are spreading the Delta variant. Back, Back with you in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week 
with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Back with you at the Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here, Charles Goldman with me in the studio. Uh, thanks again to those in our listening audience who support what we're doing. We need your help. Keep it coming, folks. Uh, we've been doing this for 12 years now, and there aren't a lot of stations out there, programs out there, that are trying to provide the kind of alternative we provide to the right-wing shock jocks. I want to thank also the uh, local businesses here in central Iowa that helped make this program possible. Thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her. Our chickens, uh, I don't know, our chickens capable of loving a vet? Maybe, maybe not. You can learn more at any rate at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by calling Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. And thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission <clears throat> of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so Charles Goldman again in the studio with me. Uh, Charles, I try to stay out of COVID fights because, frankly, between the climate emergency, the threat of nuclear war, and what artificial intelligence might do to the future of our species, I just feel there's um, more pressing concerns. So you, you feel that the Terminator is more likely demise for humanity than the climate emergency? No, but I feel either are more likely the demise of humanity than COVID. But anyway, I, it's, COVID has been a fascinating ride, an unfortunate ride, a ride that I wish, I think most of us wish we were over with, but I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, but a ride also that has spawned some incredible uh, conspiracy theories. Um, and I think, I think some of the, I think, you know, personally, I think, I think uh, questioning authority, being inquisitive about details is good. Mm -hmm. But some of this stuff is a little bit bizarre. And you, you, um, you brought to my attention a theory that I haven't even been able to sort out. Right. This, this, that that this, COVID vaccines actually caused the Delta mutation. That's correct. So that's um, correct. The, there was an article in Forbes in which they were relating what they encountered on social media, always a fountainhead of great knowledge, um, <laughs> that the new theory about why not you should not take a vaccine was that the Delta variant was actually in the vaccinations. Put there intentionally? It, correct. To make us sick? Or whatever. That's correct. Well, that, why, would you, why would anybody put it in there? Who knows? But this is the theory, that Fauci, it was bad, actually bad in, right, it was actually in the vaccinations. The fact that, of course, the Delta variant was identified three months before any vaccination was ever given outside of a clinical trial, uh, you know, doesn't... So we, where did this, where did this uh, theory emanate from? Because you don't need to have any sort of uh, expertise to be out there. Yeah, but, but who, who, who started? Was it a QAnon theory? Uh, who knows? Probably. There's, you know, interestingly, interestingly, there's only 12, there's... 
I believe it's about 70 to 80 percent of what's on the social media related to vaccination is coming from the 12 same people, the 12 same sides. It's just, and they make money off of it. There's you, guys you, like you, Joe Mercola. Okay, so, so 70 percent of the false stuff, the. Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, exactly. But now, well, well here, look, look at this situation, okay? And this is very analogous. When I, was, when I was in West Virginia, for instance, we had a lot of Pentecostal faith healers. And there was a slew of women who I took care of who had breast cancer who were taken care of by this faith healer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very hard to convince to do any kind of traditional, um, you know, interventions for their breast cancer. Now, the faith healer that they used died of breast cancer herself. Oh. Right. And even after that, we could convince almost none of the, the women to allow us to do, you know, allopathic approaches to their breast cancer. And some of them could have been treated with just a pill that basically blocked, you know, the estrogen activity. And you see well, the that's, same that's thing. That's sad. Well, it is. It was yeah. totally sad. And you see the same thing out there now. Like, you know, there's a lot of these, uh, the, you know, the, the media loves now to find some right winger who's out there, like, saying, I'll never wear a mask and had some websites. Well, there's, there's a couple of them who right. died recently. That's correct. Them. And what's interesting is, so first of all, their initial premises or their baseline premises, COVID's a hoax. Right. Okay. Then it's not a hoax because they're talking about not taking the vaccine, right? So then they get COVID and almost every one of them was taking Invermectin. You know, which is this drug, the, the new, the anti-parasite drug mm-hmm. that everyone's convinced. And it never seems to bother anybody that these people were taking Invermectin and they died of COVID anyway. Now, the problem with, like, for instance, Invermectin is that there was, there was a meta-analysis done in spite of the fact that supposedly the pharmaceutical companies were going to try to block access to this, this secret information um, and therefore wouldn't be able to make money off of vaccinations and things like that. Um, there was a meta-analysis that came out that did seem to show that Invermectin might have some value, except that uh, about a month later, the article was retracted because the one, the one study that actually skewed the entire meta-analysis to favor Invermectin, that article was pulled because it turned out to be a fraud, just like the fraud of autism and, mm. uh, and you know, other vaccinations from uh, the Lancet. So nothing is going to convince people who truly believe this. I mean, the very people who are telling them don't take the vaccine or taking Invermectin die of COVID anyway, doesn't matter. This is, this is how tribal we've become. So you're saying, though, that the, the, the theory about the coronavirus, the COVID vaccine causing the Delta variant... Uh, it's ludicrous. Well, okay, sure. Yeah, and, but that's coming from a handful of individuals or companies that are putting forth these these um, false theories intentionally with the intent of making money. and A lot of, I would say that of the so, 12 we're talking about, almost every one of them sells items on their website okay, so they're kind of to learning from, COVID. They're kind of learning from the pharmaceutical companies, right? <laughs> That's probably true. Right. But yeah, you know, and they're usually selling either Invermectin or they're selling colloidal silver or they're selling something you know, that's going to keep you from getting COVID. So is, is, is there anything illegal about that, about, about falsely promoting a, a substance that actually hurts people? You know, that's, that's, that's a good question because, uh, you know, a lot of, remember, a lot of the supplements are protected by the laws promulgated by Orrin Hatch, um, where a lot of these companies are, you know, headquartered in Utah, that 
although you have to put warnings on these supplements that they're not FDA approved by any, you know, they have no proof they work, that that's all you have to do. Now, what's happened in some situations, for instance, our favorite, you know, right-wing shock jock, Alec Jones, you know, uh, down, yeah, down Springfield. Um, he was well, selling... He, he might be my favorite. Yeah, I don't know. He was saying colloidal <laughs> silver. He was selling colloidal silver. He probably still is on his website. Yeah. And he uh, ran afoul of the New York State Attorney General uh, because he was sexually harassing you know, women. No, he wasn't. But, you know, just because they told him he couldn't, he couldn't advertise that and sell it in New York State. Okay. But that's kind of the only impediment to selling these crocs of, you know, these... So to what, to, what ex, to what extent have have uh, conspiracy, uh, COVID conspiracy theories, uh, to what extent has that been instrumental in setting back efforts to, uh, to, uh, to, um, to prevent COVID from continuing to expand and, and, and move forward? I mean, I mean and, I, and I recognize that there are people out there who have legitimate concerns about vaccines and I think, I think legitimate analysis about the, 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 uh, the, the coronavirus. That, I, that, that don't subscribe to conspiracy theories. But I think that's, you know, a, a big chunk of the, uh, the folks who are opposed to any kind of a- action do buy that. And to what extent do you think is that, I mean, I guess I mean, I'm, I'm looking for a percentage, I guess. To what extent has that universe been instrumental or been, been, been at all, uh, had any influence at all on the lack of momentum toward resolving the crisis? It probably represents about 25 percent of the people who would be eligible to get vaccinations who are not doing it. 20, not 25 percent of the population. 25 percent of the non 25 percent of the 50 percent. That's correct. No, 25 percent. Uh, I mean, in Iowa, it's about 50 percent who have not been vaccinated. 49 percent. Right. So I would say, yeah, about a third, about a third are probably due to pretty much misinformation from social media. There are some people who are legitimately uncertain, you know, yeah, about yeah, the safety because yeah. it wasn't fully approved. Right, right. Um, but, you know, the, the question here is, the argument that the unvaccinated are making is, we have our rights. Okay. And, of course, if you're so anti-mask, why are you taking Invermectin? Okay. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You're taking Invermectin, a drug that's not approved for human use. Right? And, but you won't put a mask on? I mean, it's, it's, the hypocrisy is just unbelievable. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I, the, there was just an article today asking the question, or stating, it's time that we don't really care about the unvaccinated at this point. The vaccinated have rights too. Mm-hmm. We have rights also, right? And the rights are that you don't well, have to get vaccinated, yeah. but there are consequences not but being what about, what about children? Well, children, what, what about children? Well, they aren't, aren't able to get the vaccination. Well, uh, yeah, so that's, that's correct. We don't count that as they choose not to be vaccinated. Right, okay. They can't get but, vaccinated. But, but so to what extent do the, does the vaccinated community that does not buy these conspiracy theories have some obligation to children outside of you know, your own family that, uh, that aren't able to get the vaccination? Oh, well, I agree with you. I mean, yes, you're making an argument for masking and, and measures in schools that we're not taking. Because that's right, they don't have a choice. But my, my answer would be, you know, we're going to have a lot of problems here because you're going to have a mass exodus of, of nurses and others at hospitals. We've already had that. Well, even more so, who will not get vaccinated. And, and it's November 1st is the date. But then you have a company like Delta that said, fine, you don't need to get vaccinated. But if you don't get vaccinated, this is what the deal is. You're going to pay $250 more a month on your health insurance. Is, is, that, is that constitutional? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? We, yeah, there is a premium for smokers. They pay more money for okay. 
it's absolutely, vaccine mandates are absolutely constitutional. And they're a private company. They can do what they, they, can do what they want. Well, and right. the other thing they said right. is, if you get sick, you use your sick days. If you get vaccinated and you get sick, we cover you, you, the freebie. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Hey, Charles, uh, we got to run to a break. Uh, folks, we have been talking to Charles Goldman. And again, if you didn't, if you were wondering who Charles Goldman is, you, now you know. Well, maybe, maybe if you didn't tune into the, uh, <laughs> the first segment, maybe you still don't know. But here he is, a regular co-host of the program, uh, a guy who spends way too much time analyzing uh, news stories. <laughs> uh, well, he should be operating on, operating on people. No. <laughs> No, and also uh, doing a great job with the hospice program, I believe, at uh, our local hospital here. Well, palliative care. Yeah. Palliative H- care. Hospice is a freestanding entity. Right, gotcha. Right. All right. Hey, when we come back, folks, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to do, we're going to look at uh, foraging in our food segment today uh, and why it's important that cities uh, who are interested in food security, you know, consider the value of foraging. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, and I hope the earth has treated you as kindly as it has treated us here in central Iowa this year. Again, a little bit low on moisture, but the, uh, the harvest in our garden and in the gardens of a lot of people I know has been pretty generous. Before we talk a little bit about a related issue, I want to say thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so foraging. I, you know, I started foraging when I was a kid. I took a real interest in a guy named Yule Gibbons, and I went out and I found stuff to eat in the woods. And uh, I never, po- never once poisoned myself. And as we look to trying to encourage communities to do more to maintain their own local food security, foraging is a big deal. And with us to talk about that today is Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Hey, Kathy. Hey. <laughs> so, what, what have you been out foraging lately? Well, I foraged as a kid too. My brothers and sisters and I saw our parents 
have, uh, you know, business people or neighbors over to the house for parties and they ate hors d'oeuvres, little, little treats on crackers. And we would go out and sit underneath the swing set where your feet scrape against the ground and it's always dirty and sandy. And we, we would sprinkle dirt on our saltine crackers and call them hors d'oeuvres and eat them. Okay, that's, um, that's a very questionable foundation <laughs> to uh, foraging. Uh, I hope you're not going to recommend that our audience go out and eat dirt. No, I've, okay, I've learned a lot about foraging since then, and it should taste good <laughs> is one thing, and it right. should not be bad for you is another. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, Ed, you and I grow about half the food we eat in our yard, and we teach people to grow food. Uh, but we're also part of the Food Security Task Force here in Des Moines, and uh, foraging is one of the five uh, main topics that that task force is tackling in this first iteration of uh, its existence. And it's really good because you and I do a lot of foraging and others can and I think should as well. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I foraged this spring was uh, nettles. And uh, if you don't, if you've never picked nettles before, you want to make sure you do it with gloves. Because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they will sting stinging, you. Stinging nettles they for a reason. You, yes. But, and, and a lot of a lot of folks I know like to boil them or saute them. I prefer just to make a tea out of them. I find them a very, very strong, uh, uh, healthy medicinal tea. I did not yeah. care for them sauteed. <laughs> Or boiled either, but yeah. yeah, when when I get a cold in the winter and you make tea and you use nettles, that that stuff hits the spot. Yeah, but this is a great time of the year for foraging with uh, with uh, grapes, uh, peaches, ba- apples, pears, blackberries. I mean, so many fruits available. Right now, but it's I mean, super. yeah, it's uh, there there are things people should know. Yeah, I mean, again, there and then there are things cities can do to make sure people understand that it's okay to do that. Yet there are some parameters. There are some limitations. There are. Um, and when we uh, launched the Food Security Task Force website, it'll be called Feed DSM. That's uh, when I say we, I mean the city and the task force uh, put together. Um, it will outline the benefits like reducing your grocery bill, getting more you know, different nutrients in your diet, being more in tune with your neighborhood, your neighbors that builds community, and, and uh, also reducing the environmental impact. Uh, you, you should be aware that there are ethical aspects to foraging. In other words, uh, you know, don't just go walk into somebody's yard and, and forage their food out of their garden. So um, public properties can be foraged, parks and um, even some people are agreeable to letting the food they grow be foraged, but you need to have permission. Yeah, and, and and don't take it all. I, I have a I have a when I when I go out and when, if I find something that's not that common, say a morel mushroom, I will only take half of what I find. I'll never clean it clean it out. I'll just never take it all. Uh, I mean, you're that's the just, only one that forages mushrooms like that. Morels. <laughs> Everybody else takes all well, they can get, and then they brag. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You should. You should save some for the next person and also save some for that plant to continue to propagate. And when you when you collect the morels and mushrooms, you don't use a solid bag. Use something that they can they can kind of put their spores back down in the ground. Oh, as you there carry you go. Hadn't thought of yeah. that. Yeah, but I mean the same with other crops as well. But I mean something like something like nettles. Yeah, gosh, you're gonna you're never gonna you could not possibly pick all the nettles in Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're doing people a favor too. <laughs> right. Um, another ethical aspect about foraging is uh, not to not to hurt the, the area that you forage from. In right. other words, don't you know cut a branch of a tree so that you have more growth of a certain thing that you want to 
want to forage. Um, do it in moderation. Do it responsibly. Harvest when when the the plant and the leaves uh, need to uh, only only harvest the part of the plant that is edible. Don't pull the whole plant. Don't yeah. you know? Don't pull the root up if you just need the leaves. Yeah. Well, and there are some plants. Uh, spring beauties, for example, a beautiful flower, edible tuber. The uh, challenge with that is you don't want to you don't want to destroy the flowers. And besides, the tubers are better uh, when the flower is not in bloom. Of course, they're harder to identify then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of have to know where your spot is. But um, you know, same with uh, other root pro- root crops like like Jerusalem artichokes, uh, mm-hmm. also very good. But you don't want to just come in and take the whole patch. You want to take just enough. Uh, you know what you need, but uh, again, making sure there's plenty left for the plant to, uh, the, the colony to survive. Cattails is another one, too. I mean, I, I, I there's a, Yule Gibbons called cattails the uh, supermarket of the swamp because mm. it had so many different, like five different um, features that you could eat. Well, the, you know, the, the forager, his or herself can be very uh, much a, a positive aspect of the foraging process, but a city can also help encourage foraging and help create spaces that foraging works for, for people with more edible park yes. plantings, um, agroforests, edible forests, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah. So those are on the rise and we are working with the city as we talked about to encourage that. And some other cities are doing the same. Didn't you have someone on the show yeah, from Sheridan, yeah, um, Wisconsin? Who no, did? no, no, uh, Wyoming. Wyoming. From Sheridan, Wyoming, who had been instrumental in the uh, city establishing an edible forest uh, and that you know that more of that's happening. It's, I, I just found out since then it's been happening in uh, Davenport, Iowa as well, and uh, and even in Des Moines we have um, there's no specific edible forest, but there are lots of places in the city where they have begun to plant, uh, you know, strawberries, Juneberries, mm-hmm. um, apples, peaches, cherries. And, and you know, well, and how about them walnuts? Well, well nobody plants <laughs> no, walnut those trees just here, happen, but, but there uh, are some city plots with a lot of black walnuts. You have to work really hard to get it. I mean, I, we figured out that 800 walnuts will give you one gallon of nut meat. It's very delicious. It's worth if it. You, if you want to <laughs> it's take a lot the of work, but it's worth that. it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, I, I just I I, I think uh, it's exciting to see that Des Moines is including foraging on its website. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's DS, or Feed DSM website. It's not quite and, launched yet, so yeah. don't go looking for it yeah, just yeah. yet. Sooner. Yeah, it'll be soon. out soon. And um, again, there's, you know, you know, I, I live with, a, when I lived in Duluth, Minnesota, I knew a guy who uh, spent $60 a year on food. He, um, he, grew, uh, he grew potatoes. That was it. He bartered for dairy from his neighbor. He bought rye. Almost all the money he spent was on rye flour. Oh, and everything else he got, he ate from walking around the streets or the or even the countryside. But he got a lot from parking lots, abandoned parking lots. So you, it was amazing how much you could find. That is inspirational. Uh, I'm not going to go that far. Yeah, because, uh, you know, there there's a flavor profile missing in some of that stuff, too. <laughs> hey, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in to today's program. Um, thanks to Connie Bozen. And also to Charles Goldman and Kathy Burns and to the rest of our production team, Sherry Herdina and Forrest Detterman. Thanks to the, our, our small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, 
and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Sign up for my weekly email on the Fallon Forum website. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for tuning in. This is Ed Fallon.